As you guys are finding your seats, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We are in the same portion of Scripture we have been in the last few weeks. Um, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. If you would read along with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, lo- or does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just pray that you're with us this morning, Lord. God, as we celebrate motherhood, as we celebrate Mother's Day, Lord, I pray that you encourage all the moms, Lord, that are in this congregation right now, God. For them to see how important their calling is as a mother. But also, Lord, to be encouraged that you are right there with them, that there is grace. God, I pray this morning that you're with us. In your son's name, amen. Happy Mother's Day. Last couple of weeks, we've been in 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12, the passage I just read, which is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest passage in Scripture on love. In 1 John um, 4, 7 through 21, I mentioned this last week, that's 14 verses. The word love is repeated 29 times in 14 verses. That's averaging two times a verse. And to put that in perspective, love is addressed here more than all four Gospels. So this is probably, I would argue, the greatest chapter, greatest portion of Scripture on love in all of um, Scripture. And so because of this, we've been diving in deep and really been trying to answer the question, what is biblical love? Especially loving one another within the church within a local church. But this morning I was hoping to take a break from First John and actually preach a Mother's Day sermon. So I was trying to figure out, well, what passage should I preach out of? And so I hope you guys don't look down upon me as a pastor on this. I googled. <laughs> Mother's Day passages Bible. And guess what passage popped up? 1 John chapter 4, <laughs> especially verses 11 and 12. So let me read that. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Of course, this passed up. That's because motherhood is one of the greatest displays of love. One of the greatest displays of love. It's a visible display of love, sacrificial love we talked about last week, active love, 
Motherhood is a display of these things. And I am blessed to be able to witness this daily. Not only did I get to marry my best friend and my beautiful wife, Sarah, but I married the woman that daily sacrifices and actively loves my three children. And I couldn't be more proud of her as a mom. So I really wanted to talk about mothers today and motherhood today. And I want to start by saying motherhood is hard. (laughs) Motherhood is hard. Sarah works, and she has been working, one day a week. Um, And one day a week, uh, a 12-hour shift. And so most of the day, the kids go to the grandparents' house. And at night, uh, she comes home after the kids are asleep. At night, I try to do two things. I pick up the kids from the grandparents' house, and I try to do two things. That's bathe them and get them ready for bed. And those two things are hard. (laughs) (laughs) Out of my week, that night is usually when I do most of my repentance and asking for forgiveness. (laughs) To be honest, I really think that God had Sarah working one day a week just to remind me how hard motherhood is. It's hard. But can I encourage you with something? Actually, my brother told me this. and uh, Because I talked to the high schoolers a lot, and I used to talk to them a lot more, but I would always say marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. And they look at me like, well, why would I do those two things then? And to be honest, a lot of people are saying, no, I'm not sacrificing for either one in our culture. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. But here's the wisdom, and my brother told me this. I never forgot this. He says, the things that are most, most worthwhile in life are never easy. The things that are most worthwhile, that bring the most joy, that bring the most pride, are never easy. So here's what I want to do this morning, mothers. I, want, I just want to encourage you. It's my goal is to encourage you this morning. And I want to start by actually telling a story. When I was in seminary, um, we took a, I took a church history class, and I love church history. Um, and so I was excited for this class. I already knew a lot of church history at that point, and uh, I, I was excited to dive in deeper. And I really vividly remember the first day of class, and I did a lot of my schooling online, but this was actually one of the classes I was out in Louisville at my seminary, sitting in class with 40 other students, and the, the professor came in and sat down, and he started by asking this question. Who was the most influential man in Western civilization? Outside of Jesus and the apostles. Because, of course, Jesus is the most influential man, and the apostles are the second and third and fourth and so on. Outside of Jesus and the apostles, who is the most influential man in Western civilization? That's a very interesting question. Who would you say? Anyone? I asked for service. Luther? I heard a lot of Luther first service. And so we did the same thing. The the professor got up there, asked a question, and people just started kind of naming names. And he wrote names on the whiteboard. Again, this was a church history class. So assuming it's someone from from church history, we started naming people. And of course, this is not scientific and obviously could be argued. Um, Someone yelled out Billy Graham, who started the modern-day evangelical movement shared the gospel with more people than anyone ever. 
provided spiritual counseling for every U.S. president, from, Cherry, or from Truman, the 33rd president, to Barack Obama, the 44th. And talk about influence, right? Still, most people, I think, wouldn't say Billy Graham is the most influential person in Western civilization for how much influence he had. Because if you look at Billy Graham's life, there's many people that influenced him. Especially, and, and I think this is important to understand, the fundamentalist movement. So Billy Graham came out of the fundamentalist movement, whose goal was to preserve the fundamentals of the faith. And Billy Graham took those fundamentals and shared them with masses amounts of people. So the fundamentalist movement was very influential in Billy Graham's life. And you really could draw a line from the fundamentalist movement to the first and second Great Awakening. Massive revivals in Europe and the U.S. So maybe people like Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield or John Wesley, right, all very influential men. And honestly, if church history was taught in the schools, these men would be known, and they should be known, because their influence on the U.S. is enormous. Spread across the Europe and the U.S., huge influence. And like I said, directly influenced even the fundamentalist movement, which influenced Billy Graham. But if you looked a little bit deeper, all these men were heavily influenced themselves, and they were influenced by the Reformation in the 1500s. few men that protested against the Catholic Church. That's why we're called Protestants, because we protested against the Catholic Church. And this movement, obviously, was hugely influential and uh, just to give you an example, we've given an examples, or I've given a, an example just recently from the pulpit, but here's another example. The Protestant Reformation led straight to the Puritans, and the Puritans really were the ones that populated early America. So America, the most powerful nation in, in the world, was directly influenced by the Reformation. And that's why I think first service we heard a lot of Martin Luther's. The professor wrote on the board names like Zwingli, John Calvin, and of course Martin Luther, and obviously uh, Gutenberg, right, who invented the printing press, was a part of the Reformation too. Huge impacts on Western civilization. I think a lot of people would argue he's the most influential person next to Jesus, Paul, and the apostles. But to be honest, I think most of us in that class that day thought the professor was leading us to Martin Luther, Right? Most influential man, we thought. Martin Luther's impact on the world was undeniable. Right? and is undeniable. But we learned that day that there was a man that was above them all. And that's St. Augustine. Right? From the 4th and 5th century. It doesn't surprise me that I heard Augustine over here. His teachings really shaped the Catholic Church dominated the Middle Ages for a thousand years, right? Yet at the same time, it's interesting, his doctrines of grace encouraged the Reformers to protest against the Catholic Church and start the Reformation. Many theologians even argue, and historians argue, that the Reformation, which is this, massly, or this massive influential uh, event that happened in the 1500s, was Augustine's theology of the Church, the Catholic Church, arguing against Augustine's theology of grace, the Protestant reformers. Super interesting. Even Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Augustine had a huge influence on the reformers, and 
It's one of the reasons we named our son Augustine. It's August's full name. Both Protestants and Catholics alike, to this day, claim Augustine as their own. Hugely influential. 1,500 years massive influence. My professor that day made the claim that Augustine stands head and shoulders above everyone as the most influential man in Western civilization outside of Jesus and the apostles. Again, it's not scientific. We could probably argue someone else, but here's the point. What's this have to do with motherhood? Well, Western civilization would look a lot different than it does today if it wasn't for one woman, one mother. Her name is Monica. And that's St. Augustine's mom. Let me just read you a story about Monica. About 331 AD in North Africa, a baby girl was born who would become the mother of one of the most influential Christians of all times. Monica was born into a, a, a fairly wealthy family, an old Christian maidservant. Just can't wait to meet this person. An old Christian maidservant who had also cared for Monica's father as a baby, brought Monica up in the Christian faith. Monica was given in marriage to uh, Patricius, a pagan official who was not a Christian. Though the wife of a non-Christian, I want to stop right there as we go through this story. If you're a mother this morning and you're married to a non-Christian, which I know there's some in our congregation, listen to this story and be encouraged. Though the wife of a non-Christian, Monica prayed for her fam- that her family might eventually all come to Christ. She attempted to bring up her children up in the ways of the Lord, and it pained her to see them astray from the truth she had taught them. Her most promising son, Augustine, was given an excellent education, and Monica hoped this would be a means to, to fully, uh, for him to fully reach God. Yet Augustine ignored his mother's warnings against youthful lust and pursued a life of self-gratification and immorality while continuing his classical education. He lived with, a woman not his, or lived with a woman, not his wife, and fathered a child and even got mixed up in a pagan cult. And here's where the encouraging part comes in. Monica didn't have the words to convince her son of the truth of Christianity, but she determined never to stop praying that he would turn to God. Monica prayed. Listen, as a parent, and I'm learning this, and I think I'll learn this more as my children get older, um, as a parent, as a mother, a lot of what happens is just kind of out of our hands. I mean, we're called to, to be faithful parents, but there's a lot that's just out of our hands. And, but Monica faithfully prayed and prayed and prayed for her kids. Well, God answered that prayer in Augustine's life. I want you to listen to this testimony. We get this from the Confessions, which is Augustine wrote a massive amount of, of books. And, and one of the books he written was Augustine's Confessions, which was pretty much just a diary that was brutally honest about his life, his conversion. Um, and, and this is what it says for years. We get this from uh, the Confessions. It says this, for, for years, he, Augustine, had sought to overcome his, his fleshly passions and nothing seemed to help. His life at this point was, at a point, was out of control with alcohol, sex. He was actually addicted to sex, which is interesting. It's before pornography. Guilt was crushing him. 
One afternoon, he was wrestling anxiously about all this guilt while walking in a garden. Suddenly, he heard children singing a song and repeating a phrase, Take up and read. Take up and read. Take up and read. On the table next to him was a Bible. He had been studying for school. He picked it up and read the first thing he saw. He just picked up a Bible, and the first thing he saw was this. Not in sexual promiscuity and drunkenness, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Romans 13, 13 through 14. I think God heard Monica's prayers. Hours and hours of praying for her son. This is what he wrote, actually, in his confessions. It said, he said this, I needed not to read any further, for instantly, at the end of this sentence, light and peace came into my heart, and all the darkness and doubt vanished away. It's amazing. Monica died in 387 AD. At the age of 56, in his confessions, Augustine spoke of, of the grief and weeping for, the mother by, for his mother by saying, Now gone from my sight, who for years had wept over me, that I might live in God's sight. She died a happy woman, for she had seen her prayers answered. Both her husband and her son had become believers. Augustine was 33 at the time of his mother's death, and many years of service to Christ and the church lay before him. In later years, Augustine could look back on his life and recognize the importance of his mother's example, love, perseverance, prayer, and faithfulness to his own salvation and ministry. However, neither Augustine or Monica could, could have foreseen that Augustine's own ministry would continue over the centuries and would even influence such men as Luther, Calvin, and the Reformers. Moms, your calling is extremely important. Moms, I really believe that you're the true heroes of the faith. I was at a pastor's conference. I usually talk about this for children's ministry, so if you're thinking about getting involved in children's ministry, extremely important. But I was at a pastor's conference, and at one point we were in a room with hundreds, maybe close to a thousand pastors. And this question was asked, how many of you were saved before the age of 13? And probably about my estimation, 90% of the hands were raised. When you think about that, every one of those pastors has a congregation ranging from 20 to 6,000 people. Think of the massive influence just within that room. And I want you to think about this. Every hand that was raised, there was a mom who was faithful that got her son ready for church Sunday mornings, that faithfully served in the nursery or Sunday school, that got her son to Awana, that shared scripture with her son at night, that shared the gospel with her son, that prayed for her son. Every hand raised, there is a mom that's either in heaven or that is going to be in heaven with great rewards because of their faithfulness. Moms, truly, you are the heroes of the faith. Did you know there is rewards in heaven? 
This is, uh, I, I don't know what this looks like, but there's places throughout Scripture that talk about it. For example, Matthew 6.20 says this, but, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, whether thieves, um, where thieves do not break in and steal. Or 2 Timothy 4.8, which says this, Henceforth there um, is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Revelations 22.12 says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. Listen, it's, it's clear in Scripture, and we should all know this, that we are saved by grace through faith. But after we are saved, there's some kind of rewards for faithfulness as a Christian. Hebrews 11.6 even says this is, this is a part of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because, and this is a definition of faith, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those that earnestly seek him. I want to be clear, this is not health, wealth, or prosperity. God doesn't promise those things. What he does promise is much, much better. He promises joy. Faithful obedience will bring joy. But also, there's some kind of rewards in in heaven, and like I said, I... I don't know all. It's kind of a mystery to me what that looks like. But there's one very clear and important stipulation to these rewards. It's found in Matthew 6.1. It says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no rewards from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. In other words, there's great reward for unseen faithfulness. And we see this throughout Scripture. So here's my guess. When we, go, when we get to heaven, the biggest rewards are not going to be for the Billy Grahams. It's not going to be for the Jonathan Edwards or the George Whitfields or the John Wesleys. It's not going to be for the John Calvins, the Zwingli's, or the Martin Luther's. It's not going to be for the Augustines. It's going to be for the Monica's. Those people that have the hardest jobs with little praise and little to no recognition yet are faithful to God. My guess is it's going to be a bunch of moms. Please be encouraged this morning. Your calling is so important. And that's my goal this morning. I want to encourage you. And and I want to encourage you by saying this. Your calling is not to be perfect. You're not called to be perfect. I I spend one night... (laughs) getting my kids to do two things, bathe them and put them to bed. And I feel like a failure often in those two things. Often as parents, I think we feel like failures. And I know motherhood sometimes feels that way, right? I want to encourage you, the goal is not perfection. 
the goal is faithfulness. The goal is not perfection because we're all going to fail. As parents, I fail all the time. The goal is faithfulness. So please, if you're a mom this morning, please stop beating yourself up when you fail. You will fail at points. When you think about this, Monica failed (laughs) at points. Imagine how much of a failure she must have felt when her son Augustine left home. An immoral pagan, rejecting her teachings, making a mess out of his life. And not only that, getting mixed up with a, a pagan cult. There's moments when she was on her knees feeling like a failure, just praying out and crying out to God. And with that said, she, she did fail at points. She's human, right? She's a sinner. She's not perfect. But she was faithful. She was faithful. And you better believe there's rewards in heaven for her faithfulness. I want you to think of this. Who's the most famous mom in the scriptures? Mary. Most famous mom ever, right? Mary. Mother of Jesus. And you want to talk about a faithful lady? Mary, probably from a poor family, was a godly woman, right? Betrothed, betrothal happened in that culture between the ages of 12 and 15. Think about that. Meaning, when she was told that she was pregnant, she was probably between the ages of 12 and 15. This is before sexual relationship. This is before she was married. In a culture that completely looked down on anyone that got pregnant before marriage to the point where her life would be on the line, getting stoned to death. And this is her response when she is heard from an angel that she's going to be pregnant. Uh, Luke 1, 38 says this, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You think about that. What 14-year-old would say something like that? A 14-year-old that she knows this is going to be extremely hard. I am going to be talked about behind my back by everyone. A 14-year-old that, that, that knows she's going to lose all of her friends because of this, and she tells God, God, I trust you. I'm your servant. A godly woman, a faithful woman, but not perfect. <laughs> not perfect. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. As you're turning there, I just want you to think about this. It's interesting in Jesus' life, we have a lot about his birth narrative, but we don't have much about his childhood. Really, all we have is one story of his childhood. It goes from the birth narrative in the gospel straight to when he was probably around 30 and started his ministry. But we have one story, one story of Jesus as a child, and one story, honestly, is of Mary as a mother while Jesus was a child. And it's found in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, which says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were uh, returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey... But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, searching for him 
After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting around among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So think about this, what Jesus would have been like as a child, okay? The perfect child, the sinless child, right? Perfectly submissive, never talking back, always listening the very first time. (laughs) Mary had one job as a mother, pretty much. Don't lose him. (laughs) I'm going to raise my hand for this next question, so don't be ashamed. Have you ever lost a child? Yeah. Look at what it says in verse 46. And after three days, they found him. Can you imagine? Three days searching for Jesus. Joseph, we lost the Son of God. (laughs) I just think it's interesting that this is the only story inspired by God of Jesus' childhood. It's really a story of Mary failing, losing Jesus. Jesus' childhood, that's it. Lost him for three days. Why would, Jesus, or why would God inspire this to be in the Bible, this story? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons in this portion of scriptures, but I partly, truly think just to encourage us as parents. Mothers, you're not perfect, and that's okay. That's okay, because there is grace. There is grace. Mary made mistakes. She also made mistakes even when Jesus was an adult. Mark 3.20 says this, One time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather. Soon he and his disciples couldn't find time to eat. When his family heard what, he was, what was happening, they tried to take him away, He's out of his mind, they said. They were thinking maybe because he was getting tired or because it says right here that he hadn't eaten in a while, that the family thought Jesus was out of his mind for whatever he was doing and saying. And verse 31 makes it clear that Mary was a part of this. It says in verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. In other words, Mary didn't completely understand, even when Jesus was an adult, exactly who Jesus was and what he was doing. And there's other passages that make this clear. She wasn't perfect when Jesus was a child. She wasn't perfect when Jesus was an adult. But listen, Mary was faithful. She was a faithful mother, and Jesus loved her for that. Think about this. Jesus was on the cross, dying a horrific death, Saving people, saving us from our sins. Our our sins, the weight of the world, the sins of the world were placed on Jesus' back. And he looked down in this moment and saw his mother. And this is what he said. This is John chapter 19, verse 25. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John, he said to her, Dear woman, and just so you know, that word woman in this culture was a very polite way of addressing someone. It would be like saying, dear lady. It's not polite in our culture. But in this culture, it was a very polite way of addressing someone. He said, dear woman, here is your son, and points to John, the disciple. And he said to the disciple, this is John, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Just so you know, most likely, Joseph, Jesus' father, died 
before Jesus started his ministry, so at this point, Joseph wasn't around. That's just a guess because you don't hear anything about Joseph in Jesus' ministry. So when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at his mother and was concerned. And out of love for his mother, he looked at John and said, John, take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. It's interesting. The Bible only records seven things that Jesus says on the cross, and one of them is his concern and love for his mom. The calling of motherhood is so important. It's hard. It can be thankless. It can be lonely. It can make you feel like a failure often. But it's so important. The goal is not perfection. The goal is faithfulness. And if you are faithful, there's great rewards waiting for you as a mom. I want to end this service, first of all, by getting you guys out really early. So happy Mother's Day. guys can go out and get a good lunch before everyone else gets out. But I want to end just talking about this pastor conference where 90% of the room rose their hand, a thousand pastors about. I was one of them that rose my hand. My dad, I'm very thankful for, is a godly man who modeled manhood, and I am very thankful for my dad. But I'm also thankful for my mom, who is a teacher. She taught me the scriptures. She taught me who God was. She answered my questions when I had them. And she was the one that shared the gospel with me when I was seven. And when I left for college and started pursuing the world and worldly things and making a mess out of my life like Augustine, it was my parents who were there for me. I knew home was a safe place. I knew home would be a place where I would find truth. I wouldn't be the man I am today if it wasn't for her. Motherhood is extremely important. So let me end where we started with a Google search on Mother's Day passages, which led me to 1 John 4, 11 through 12, which says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's interesting, that last verse. Let me just read it again, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time on this one verse, verse 12. But let me just read you what John MacArthur says in his commentary on verse 12. In verse 12, John makes a simple point. That if no one has seen God the Father at any time, and Jesus is no longer visibly present to manifest his love, people will not see God's love unless believers love one another. If they love one another, God would be on display, testifying that he abides in them and his love is perfected in them. The unseen God thus reveals himself through the visible love of believers the love that originates in God and was manifested in his son is now demonstrated by his people. In other words, and I think this is amazing to think about, how we love one another reveals who God is. 
our love for each other should reveal who God is, at least. And I want to be clear, because we love to take passages like this and make them apply to different relationships in the, the, the context of the passage. And most of the passages that are on love are talking about the love for each other within the church. And I think we ignore that because that's hard. And so we say this, these loves are for different relationships than each other within the church. It's clear that this passage is talking about the love we have for each other in the church, a local body, a local church. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week. So I want to make that first point clear. And the other point I want to make very clear is God is a father, not a mother. And that's getting mixed up in our culture with all the gender identity issues. God is a father, not a mother. But motherly love, which is both sacrificial and active, is it not? And I don't think this is a stretch because of that. The love a mother has for a child, especially in a Christian household, partly reveals an unseeable God. A God who is love. So I hope you're encouraged this morning, moms. How appropriate is it that we're spending so much time in the love chapter of Scripture, the greatest chapter of love, and we get to take a break for Mother's Day? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for moms. God, you are the one that invented the family, Lord. You're the one that said Adam needed a helpmate and created Eve and created the family, Lord. And you intended for moms to be a visible, a visible action of love, Lord, where we can see the sacrifices and the act of love that moms have for their children. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for the mothers that surround me, my mother-in-law, my mom, and my wife, Lord, and their display of sacrificial love in my life and in my children's life. I thank you for the mothers within this church, Lord, that are such testimonies to sacrificial act of love, Lord, making love visible for everyone to see, God. I pray, Lord, that the mothers that are in this room right now that are listening online, Lord, I pray through, through your spirit, I pray that they're encouraged today. Motherhood is hard. Our calling as parents is not to be perfect, Lord, and sometimes we beat ourselves up because we're not perfect, Lord. Instead of resting in your grace, there is grace, Lord. And I thank you for your grace, Lord. Help us to be faithful parents, faithfully loving our children, faithfully pointing them to you, God, help us to be parents that uh, model your love for us, Lord. I thank you for who you are in your son's name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.